Kenneth Walker is an American journalist with over 50 years of experience. He worked for ABC News as a White House and Justice Department correspondent, as well as working as a foreign correspondent. He has won numerous awards in print, radio, and television. He won an Emmy for Outstanding Analysis of a Current News Story for his report as a correspondent for ABC Nightline News' historic broadcast originating in South Africa. In today's interview, he will share with us his path to journalism, and he will also discuss some of the issues facing our country today. Welcome to American Experience Black Edition. I am happy to have Mr. Kenneth Walker, an American journalist, award-winning journalist, on our show today. Welcome, Mr. Walker. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. And um, uh, except for the 20 years I spent living in South Africa and lived here uh, the rest of my life. Okay. Okay. And where did you go to school? In high school, I went to Archbishop Carroll, which is a Catholic uh, school right here in Washington, in uh, a school on the hill overlooks the U.S. Capitol. And Catholic University, I went to college. Okay. Okay, so how did you decide on becoming a journalist? It kind of found me. I mean, I did in the, uh, near the end of the 12th grade, uh, didn't have many of them any financial prospects for college. So uh, I'm wondering what I was going to do. So you know, I found my way from uh, from one college to another, asking questions, and in that in that way, I found uh, a program at Catholic University. At the time, it was called Partnership Partnership Program. It was one of many found. Uh, at universities around the United States in the year after the assassination of Dr. King. Uh, the primary purpose of which was to take uh, uh, primary inner city black youth and, and provide an opportunity, uh, scholarship, uh, money, uh, work money for them to attend university. And partnership was the one they started at Catholic University. So uh, I found my way there. Now, they had, in that initial class, they were going to admit, I think, 20 people. And I was late finding out about them. So I didn't make the cut. But one of the guys who uh, was running the program, which they still a dear friend, uh, said, well, you know, I see you won some awards for writing and seem to be good at it. Why don't you go down to the Daily Newspaper, one of two at the time, Washington Star, and ask them for a scholarship? Well, I was too young to know how ridiculous that was. So I went. And I got down there, and, 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 and the editor had a 90-minute, two-hour talk. He gave me a tour of the newspaper. And, and I left and found out the next day that they were offering me a four-year scholarship and an entry-level job. So uh, that formed my introduction to journalism, starting that August. Uh, and, uh, the entry-level job was what they called at the time a copy boy. 
which are the people who sit at a bank and reporters call in their stories and they type in the stories or type it at the time on a typewriter and then send some paper or a copy to the desk. Uh, so I went from copy boy to that. Um, and all the while at the same time, I'm dabbling in journalism. I would cover high school sports. Um, uh, then after that, I would, I would write some obituaries. Um, and then I night police, because I was going to school mostly in the daytime, I was working at night, so covering night police meant uh, sitting in the newsroom and, and so often calling around to the local police stations or departments and see if anything was going on. Or if something came to your attention, you would call them and ask about it. Or if it was really interesting, you'd get your butt there, whatever was going on. So I, I did that for about two years. And then after my third year, which was also my third year at university, um, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. They, they, they said, uh, we want you to be a full-time staff for a board. Uh, now, I thought about it, and it would have been nice to do another year and have graduate with that degree. Well, I wasn't sure that offer was going to be good a year from then. So I said, hey, I'm going to jump on this. So I jumped on it. And um, that's how we come to be having this discussion. Wow. So no turning back after that, huh? No turning back after that. I loved it. I mean, it was... Um, You have a you're an eyewitness to history, and you get to write the first draft of history. Um, uh, so it can be exciting. Yeah. I mean, judge work as well, but it can be exciting. And also, in a city like Washington D.C., there's there's a lot to cover. So exactly, that was an opportunity you you couldn't refuse. Exactly, exactly. Now, so Go ahead. I'm sorry. So how long did you work for the Washington Star? Until they closed in 1981. Okay. It was shut down in 1981, and my initial uh, instinct was to uh, take some time off. Uh, um, I've been working and going to school full time, you know, all that time. Married them, family, and trying to do a break. But a lot of news organizations came to the Star to evaluate the available talent. Newspapers, TV, radio, and being a polite person, I met with people called, answered all the questions. And in that process, ABC News. Actually, the only network 
TV network show. All the others were print organizations, newspapers, magazines. And so I went to the ABC News Bureau in downtown Washington, and we had a conversation. And then the um, um, guy who was the Washington Bureau chief at the time, uh, in tour, we wound up at one of the studios and, and uh, put me behind an anchor desk. He said, tell us about yourself. Uh, so I proceeded to do that. And so while I'm talking, I notice in my peripheral vision, there are people coming into the studio watching. And it's actually filling up. And so at some point, I say to myself, I think you probably ought to take this seriously. <laughs> because, I mean, these people seem to be taking it seriously. Uh, but at any point, at some point uh, in this presentation, I, I, I found all that funny, so I just broke out laughing. <laughs> I went home convinced I'd blown it. The next morning, they called and offered me a job. And wow. so I went to television. So, so what was your first television job? Were you, um, what was the title, the anchor of the? Uh, general, uh, general assignment. Reporter. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whatever comes up. Okay. Uh, which could be anything. I mean, breaking, any kind of breaking news. And then, of course, you could pursue whatever uh, stories you found interesting and that you could sell to the producers. Um, so I did that, but pretty soon I started getting beats, uh, areas where you specialize in coverage. Um, one was the, the Justice Department, one was the law, one was the White House, uh, which in network television is a pre-made assignment. Uh, those are the people who get the most time on the air. The last year of the star, I went and spent a few months in South Africa and came back and that was the last series that they were ever had. It was a series of news reports that I wrote uh, from South Africa. I mentioned that because um, while I was a Justice Department correspondent at ABC, I suggested to them that they needed to do something out of South Africa. And so I got their attention and I showed them my series, which actually several of them had already read. And so they said, okay, great. So Nightline, uh, and then it's prime, it's peak, uh, anchored by Ted Koppel, said, hell, we're gonna do that. We're gonna go to South Africa. We're gonna go, we're gonna spend 10 days and we're gonna broadcast from there and you're our correspondent. So, yeah. Wow. <laughs> so we went, I went, and um, was off to the races. I think that probably was uh, the highlight of my career to see that series that we did in South Africa. Tell me a little bit more about what you wrote 
for South Africa for the Star and your experience working as the correspondents there. How was your how was your time in South Africa? Well, let me tell you how I first got the idea. The Star was five story office building facing the Southeast Freeway in Washington. Freeway ran right by. And so my desk in the newsroom kind of occupied the whole third floor. And my desk is kind of open plan thing. Everybody had a bunch of desks around. My desk was in the back closest to the window. There were four or five of them. So I'm sitting at my desk one day reading uh, one of the few occasions where South Africa had appeared on the front page of the newspaper. This was about the uprisings in South Africa. So this white editor uh, walked behind me and saw what I was reading. He said, oh, I see we're finally getting rid of some of you people. Now, I mentioned that I was in the back by this window overlooking the Southeast Freeway because I was seriously tempted to throw his ass right <laughs> and throw him through it. Okay. I about that and go on to the Southeast Freeway. But I, I restrained myself and just said, you clearly don't know how to speak with him. So except for that which is absolutely essential to the production of this newspaper, you shall never ever speak to me again. And he did. But that, the very idea of it sparked in me, I said, I gotta go there. I, I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. because I had been gathering this attitude and these understandings from reading it and the occasional uh, TV piece about South Africa and, and all of it seemed so familiar. I mean, this is not foreign stuff to me that I'm looking at and reading about. And so I, I just had this overwhelming desire to go and experience it firsthand. And it was almost identical. I mean, first of all, uh, there are a number of languages, 11 African languages and to and English and then Afrikaans, which is other European language. But English is the language of business, and so in the cities most people speak it. And so it was easy to get around and uh, uh, and meet people and converse with people. I recall shortly after I got there, to the funeral of this young black man who had been killed while he was on a ticket line. Uh, and the other workers there had been picked up for higher wages and whatnot. And one of them got shot that day. And so, and probably a little before your time, but funerals, black funerals back then, these were like major events. Cast of thousands, and everybody's toy toying, and you know, those shouting freedom songs and whatnot. So, uh, so it was something to see. But, you know, after that, like it is in a lot of back homes in the U.S., after the funeral, people make their way back to the home of the family, which I did. And so I'm there, and a guy comes up to me, black guy, 
And later learned his name is Sam Bobby. And Sam was a journalist for one of the black newspapers. And he said, excuse me, brother. Who are you? Where are you from? It's clear you are not from here because you walk like you are free. And I knew immediately what he meant. Because back then, a lot of black South Africans are trying to get from one place to another without attracting more trouble. Okay. It's kind of like slow and brown eyes down, kind of bent over a little bit from side to side. And I certainly didn't walk like that. And Sam saw that and, and knew I was from someplace else. And we became great friends until he died. But that was my introduction to how I should carry myself in South Africa if I wanted to go and call me which was difficult to do. But um, one of the other things I soon realized, one of the other similarities, is that uh, white South Africans spend a lot of time telling me, you're not like other blacks. Uh, which I found interesting because I found black South Africans among the most similar of Africans to African Americans. Um, so when they said that, what what were they saying? What what do you think they meant when they said that? That you're not like Well, it's the same thing white people in America mean when they tell blacks from other places that y'all are different. Okay. You're not like our blacks. It's a way of sowing division and, and trying to stem any sense of solidarity you might have with our blacks. Okay. And so it's universal. I mean, white supremacy looks the same everywhere. And so. Um, And so I, I say that, I mean, as, as an aside, I was interested to learn recently by reading Isabel Robertson's book called Cast, that toward the beginning of the 20th century, there was this academic study in a lot of places um, uh, trying to build up an infrastructure to support white sprints. Uh, uh, there were studies going on in Europe, in America, in South Africa, obviously, and particularly in Germany, and beginning after World War I, uh, that led to Nazism. Now, the people who invented Nazism went around and looked at all of the available examples in South Africa, white supremacy in the United States, and they decided the U.S. experience was too extreme. The Nazis? White and white supremacy in the U.S. was too much for the Nazis, which I, which I found astonishing. Yeah, I do too. I understood perfectly because it's absolutely true. We are the world's premier white supremacist in the United States of America. Second to no one. So anyway, um, I moved around South Africa as far as I could, trying this uh, uh, privately and incognito as I could, meeting as many people as I could. Uh, and 
And so it, it became, you know, I, I developed this attitude at one point while I was there. At some point, I have to come back here again. Because it was clear to me these people were going to be free. They were going to be free a lot sooner than we were going to be. And so I wanted to, you know, I, I, I can imagine that. And the idea of it, I felt fascinated. And I said, I want to be able to live in a black world country like that. Which led to my going back first to ABC and later as the African Bureau Chief for the National Health Radio to live. And that's when I spent 20 years there. Wow, 20 years. So that's interesting. You you saw, you you were there when they were not free, and then you went back. Could you really tell the difference? Oh, yes. I mean, when I went back for ABC News, I could tell the difference when I got off the plane. As I said, during the first trip, I heard, Many blacks you saw were trying to get from one place to another without attracting no trouble. And so, I mean, in the airport, from the airplane, on the steps, I can see most black people were walking shoulders back, head up, eyes out. Something had changed. Something changed. And so, they were a lot closer to me. They were much more insistent about it. And not given a flying hoop about how they appeared to white people coming up the street. So it was, it was, uh, that was the, big, the biggest change, yes. Wow. So how much time did you spend at ABC News? I was at ABC from 1981 until 86. 86. Yes. But then they were starting a new program, um, National syndicated program called USA Today, a television show. And uh, the guy who was the executive producer at the time uh, asked to make what he and I did. And he offered me the position of anchor of the money section. So I left ABC to do that. Now, unfortunately, uh, they mucked up an idea that really shouldn't be failed, uh, but it did fail. So I was only there for uh, two years that the broadcast lasted. And so I just kind of roamed after that, but, you know, before too long. Uh, and I got picked up by a national public radio to be there after the So you are an Emmy Award winning journalist. Tell us about that. That's not something, that's not lightweight, so. Well, a lot of the awards I got, mostly at that time for my South African reporting for Magdalene, is one of the lightest of weights. They had to invent the awards for that, for that broadcast. Uh, the, the Columbia Baton Awards, they all used to be silver. They invented gold for that. Uh, Peabody Awards. Uh, created some new category for that uh, new broadcast, which was you know, groundbreaking at the time. Um, and so at the time, Emmy was a nice, certainly a nice statue to have, still sitting on one of my shelves. Um, 
what was in terms of the possession so just kind of shifting a little bit can you tell me a little bit about your experience um with the release of the human shield in iraq yes um prior to uh joining national public radio i was uh, producer of was also national syndicated show by Jesse Jackson. And so um, when Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait and well, at the same time uh, basically barring American citizens from leaving the country and by becoming so-called human shields. Uh, We weren't even on the air yet. We were planning the first broadcast. Uh, Jackson, Jesse, as we call him, decides, I had to go over there and free these people. Of course you do. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> so we prepared to go, and uh, everybody was, I mean, the, the, the people who were, uh, I think Warner Brothers was this national syndicator of the show, and Vincent Jones was the chief executive producer, and everybody was telling uh, Irv Jackson he shouldn't do, couldn't do it, you can't do this. And so uh, uh, the other producer of the show was white guy, uh, uh, and, and he was opposed to it. And so he was he was uh, so anyway. And through through all of that, the single debate, we are going. And so, uh, one of the last conversations I've had with Welcome to see he's really concerned that we've just become additional human shields. And that uh, and that was one of the reasons he didn't want to go. He didn't think he wanted to become a human shield. So, in uh, one of my last discussions with him about that, I said, well, no, I don't think so. I don't think, I don't think he, I think he'll be getting too much of a positive spin out of Jesse's visit to suddenly take him hostage. That would just piss off too many people. And they wouldn't take me hostage. I said, I can do something in that situation, Michael said to this white producer, and you can't. And he said, What is that? I said, I can send him readings from the oppressed peoples of the United States. And so the producer got it immediately <laughs> and, and understood that was an advantage that I would have had. And I would have hesitated to do so. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, if that was an advantage I would have in that situation, I would certainly used it if I had to. Um, so that was how, that was how uh, uh, the hostage situation came about. And of course, uh, Jackson arranged it so that the first plane load of hostages to come out, he's on that plane. We're on that plane. Wow. Um, lands initially in Germany, uh, Air Force Base there. And uh, I mean, the international press attention was just tremendous. 
and the traffic leading them to the start of his show. So, so that's a good way to start a new show, huh? That's a great way to start a new show. Being the object of that kind of international focus. So that was how the hostage story started. So did the, I mean, at the time, did the American government feel that he could actually pull it off? I mean, no, was, can no, he talk about no, it? No, 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 no. In fact, you know, I mean, Justin done that a few times. Mm-hmm. Different situations. And their attitude was he was better. Now, although uh, I think some of them, some of the American officials came to appreciate uh, the last couple of those kind of episodes that just could be useful. Uh, you might actually get the hostages out or you know, whatever it was. And uh, I'm going to need by them some time to do what they think they might do. But they were never in a position to say, oh, boy, we thought this was a great idea. Uh, interesting. So fast forwarding to journalism today. Yes. I, know you, I know you probably have quite a bit of an opinion, being as though your career has spanned so long, you've seen so many different, you know, uh, events. Let's let's start with this one, the insurrection. As far as the coverage of that, how do you how do you think that played out? They were slow getting in gear, just like the cops. And the government weren't slow in getting in gear. I mean, they were white people after all. You know, uh, and so the idea that they could mount an insurrection, insurrection against, against the capital was just preposterous. <laughs> Unthinkable. But the press got the point sooner than most. Uh, and so I just by virtue of having to run and rerun the footage, um, the story told itself and you couldn't pretend it was something else. You had to acknowledge it was what it was and then talk about that. <clears throat> so in that sense, I thought the, um, the coverage of the insurrection all in all uh, served its purpose. Um, After the aftermath, I mean, as usual, then we're slow in dealing with some of the issues like uh, what happened in particular to the black capital policemen and the black and non black members of Congress. And so uh, I was reminded of that just yesterday. Uh, there are some members of Congress who are talking about how to climb down from the security level that the Capitol was under, including the presence of 2,000 National Guards people. I'm convinced that black members of Congress are not so anxious to see these people go. That they almost certainly want some of them to remain. And that whether they remain or not, or for however long they remain, that some serious strengthening has to occur uh, in, in U.S. capital security 
uh, in order for them to, to feel comfortable about it. This guy, this Congress, this senator from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson, just quoted yesterday as saying, uh, he was at no point was he afraid uh, of doing this insurrection. He said, now, if they had been Black Lives Matter people, probably would have been afraid. <laughs> and these people are shameless. I mean, <laughs> they are what they are, and they don't care mm-hmm. uh, so, so, I mean, there was that initial attempt to even deny they were Trump supporters. Uh, this was Antifa. And, and Black Lives Matter, these weren't Trump people. But it was too much footage going for too long and too much sound bites, too many sound bites from these people to pretend to be able to pretend as anything but Trump supporters announcing an insurrection at a time when a transfer of power was supposed to be taking place to disrupt the counting of votes to ensure that transfer. There's no way to pretend that's anything but. I think that point has been made, uh, but none too soon, because we are in um, we are in perilous times. Mm-hmm. The country, as a so-called democracy, is in perilous times. African Americans are in perilous times. American Asian Americans are in perilous times. There are people white supremacist terrorists who are out there vocal and willing and determined to kill us. And everybody needs to be clear about that. And there's no point in coloring it up or pretending it's something else. That's what we have. And you have, that's on one level what's going on. But you also have 250 pieces of legislation in 40 states trying to suppress, further suppress and restrict the African-American right to vote. <laughs> Excuse me? It's 2021. And, and so they, they do this in public, on stage, on TV, and defend it. So I'm convinced we're in terrorist times. And not all of us will survive it. That's interesting. You, and you had said something earlier about um, in South Africa. You said they were determined to be free. They were determined to make sure that happened. Yes. And here we are in this country. Do you think we as African Americans have that same drive or have we have to? Yeah, I do think I do think we, we have that same determination. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm terribly happy and satisfied with this new young generation. They're uh, not going back. We're not going back. And 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 we will continue to insist that this remain or become become a nation where everyone is equal under the law. That's a nation a lot of white people don't want to live in. It really is a nation a lot of white people don't want to live in. And that's evidenced by this 
renewed emphasis on voter suppression and restriction. About 75 million people voted for a valid racist. Uh, that, uh, but the choice is going to, going to become very simple. Uh, one, this country cannot go into the future dominated by white supremacists. For one, the international infrastructure for that has collapsed. We no longer control our way around whatever we want, wherever we want. There are now non-white peoples who are important parts of international institutions. That is, the World Bank, aspects of world trade, the Chinese economy, as large as projected to get larger in the American economy. Um, and the fact that, 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 that uh, uh, non-white, formerly colonized, formerly conquered people are still uh, determined to earn their own freedom, earn their own way. And so the international, international infrastructure for the white supremacy is not nearly what it was. But it was pervasive. You know, you talk about the period just after World War II, it was pervasive and no longer used. And it's diminishing every day. And so, uh, in America, what are we talking about? Yeah, they can, and they, they're, they're, they're willing, and seem willing, to kill a lot of people, to kill a lot of us, in order to maintain this supremacy. They, they can't kill us all. And they can't kill enough of us and remain respected citizens of the world. Countries, businesses, U.S. businesses. U.S. businesses, that's where white supremacy is breaking down on a number of fronts, at least in terms of their public customers. Because they have non-white customers, most of their customers. Used to be white people had all the money. That's not all the truth. Most of their customers, most of their customers are non-white people, and black people are a substantial chunk of that. And so that's why they have to, as they did, stop donating money to the Republican National Committee in the faith for being an aftermath of the insurrection. That's why they will be pressured to not donate money to white supremacists who are running for office and telling things like this kind of voter suppression that they're doing and trying to, trying to uh, propagate the lie that Trump had the election stolen from him. Businesses are leading the charge on that. I mean, they're, they're not. I mean, they're messing with their money. They, they can't help it. So I, I, I think that um, at the end of the day, I'm an optimist. I have to be an adventure. And um, I have to be. They will inherit a world better than the one I inherited. They'll leave one better still.
But, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not naive. Nothing lasts forever. People like to think some of them that it's this shiny object on a hill called the United States of America will exist for That's That's not true. It is not destined to live to survive forever. And the quickest way that it will not survive is with the, the, in the dying throes of, of white supremacy, the determination to wreck it if they can't have it on their own terms. So do you see the election um, with Kamala Harris becoming the first African-American vice president as, like you said, you're optimistic. Do you see that as being something to... I see that as uh, maybe one of the one side, one of the lesser sides. I mean, Barack Obama got elected president after all. Um, and so in the continuum, it is another indication that uh, a white supremacist dominated country cannot, is not sustainable going forward. They, they, they just can't happen. And, and, and I've asked people who will understand that are the diehard white supremacists. But there are a lot of them out there. There are a lot of them out there. Now, I mean, I'm of the view that a majority of white Americans are white supremacists. Now, most of them are not running around bombing black churches or, 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 or uh, storming the Capitol. But they believe in their hearts that white people are better than God intended. Now, I think there's some hope, some, in the experiences of their children and their grandchildren, who I think are leading much more diverse lifestyles, much more, uh, they're encountering uh, uh, the culture. The American culture has included all cultures. Yes, yes, yes. And, and internationally as well. So, I think, I think that um, this next generation of white kids will diminish. I'm not say that it comes to Calvary, but they will diminish the intensity of white supremacy in the society. I think. When it comes to the media, do you think the media predicts how society behaves or is it the other way around? No, I don't think the media predicts how society behaves. I think uh, a lot of its coverage and, and first of all, I mean, the media is... And like, like, for instance, I say that because when you think of like the major news outlet like Fox News, when you watch Fox News, they're not showing certain things. And then those people who watch Fox News will never watch CNN or MSNBC. So it kind of creates different segments of, of people and what they believe. Yes. Now, I think um, that's going to continue to be a big part of the problem. But part of the problem was created when they abolished, the federal government abolished uh, the fairness doctrine which nobody's heard about today for good reason. 
But until they abolished it, I think in the Reagan administration, it required that broadcasters uh, had a duty under the law to provide opposing views on various subjects. It's a fairness structure. But when they, I mean, the right-wingers and Reagan knew what they were doing when they abolished the fairness structure. Uh, it, it preceded and paved the way for the creation of something like Fox News. Now, uh, but even Fox News is, and anybody else in the marketplace, uh, subject to the whims of the market. So then, uh, which is why they had to, they had to fire some people after the insurrection because uh, their advertisers, they weren't going for that stuff. And so they don't increasingly face those kinds of dilemmas mm -hmm. that uh, uh, stuff they're putting out on Fox News is, is uh, contrary to the views of their customers. And so in that sense, there is some hope, some that is concerned as a restraint on the unbranded policy of like Fox. Having said that, <clears throat> there will always be a, a market for that kind of stuff. Not always, but certainly when it bounces about that time, there will be a market for it. And that's such somebody who will care and I guess now it's easier because anybody can start a podcast. Anybody can start a YouTube exactly. channel. <laughs> that's, that, that's another issue. But that's a double-edged sword. And this whole technology, what we're doing, it's called the internet, what social uh, media gives everybody, including African Americans, a tremendous opportunity. And learning from one another, cooperating with one another, and organize around issues we care about. Now it's true of everybody, including white supremacists. Uh, but it's a double-edged sword. I, I think uh, we're increasingly making the most of it. And the pandemic, the pandemic actually showed us that we can do it even better because before the pandemic. You know, I've, I've been on a thousand Zoom calls in the last year, and it's it's much easier to do than, you know, people thought. So you can pretty much have the world at your fingertips. Exactly. In a minute. Exactly. It's, it's, that's, it's not going back to, talking about going back to normal. Normal is gone. Mm -hmm. In so many ways. And that's certainly one of the main things. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, the value of urban commercial real estate is gone. Who's going to be building you know, skyscraper office buildings for people to sit in and work anymore? You can uh, work from home. <laughs> work from home. Yeah. Not too late. Um, so so uh, we're gonna, it's going to be a while before we figure out what the new normal is, but um, certain things are, are clear, and that is that um, Getting around, being in touch, uh, spreading ideas, organizing, uh, taking on new characteristics. Uh, and I think I 
I'm, I'm optimistic that especially our young people feel that they about and they are their lives. They are born. Um, well, you you said you you started your career in right in the late sixties. Um, after the assassination of Martin Luther King. And, and as I hear you talk now, you're talking really positively about young African-Americans. Um, how are your thoughts in comparison to the civil rights movement and Black Lives Matter? It's a continuum. I mean, it's... Um, you know, there was that law, if you, if you call it that, when uh, both the... Uh, Beginning of mass incarceration and the threatening of black communities with some of the most powerful drugs on the planet, it was crack or heroin. And there was that love where a generation was either put in jail or put to sleep. Um, and they're still, they're still one of their favorite tools, two of their favorite tools. But This new generation, I think certainly for the last 10 years, have been coming out of that sleep. Uh, nothing was avoided in prison. Uh, and, 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 and they have the fearlessness of young people. I think they'll live forever so they can make them marching and trap on cops and troops. Uh, But the civil rights movement was an important episode. I mean, I'm, I'm a civil rights baby. People born in the 50s, early 60s, raised in that period of time. The civil rights black civil rights people. And so, Today's young people didn't spring fully grown, <laughs> you know, out of Minerva's head or something. I mean, they, they took a while for them to get born, get nurtured, get nurtured, developed, see. But I was always confident that they would get there. Because why? Because the white supremacists were made sure these kids would not be able to avoid that. And so they would have to confront it. And they would figure out their own strategies and methods of opposing it, resisting it. And they've done that, and doing it in increasingly creative ways. So I, I, I'm, you know, it's a different generation, but, you know, the same kind of courage it took uh, back then is the same kind of courage we need now. I mean, I'm writing my memoir, and I'm, one of the earlier parts, I'm looking at you know, the 50s, uh, especially, uh, when television sets started appearing in homes, including African American homes, and so I'm looking at this stuff. And I'm looking at kids my age and their parents being attacked by white troopers with fire hoses and nightsticks. I'm looking at six-year-old Ruby Bridges walking through a gauntlet of adult white people shouting the vilest of things. 
and her as she tried to walk into the segregated school. I'm watching then the, uh, the, the bus boycotts and other aspects of activism. I'm watching and the resistance of it, to it by the including the assassinations of people involved, including white people. Violetta was, you know, driving people into voting rights rallies down there in, 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 in the South. And they killed her. Including Shorning Goodman, white women, they killed him. You know, they killed the Kennedys, two presidents most closely identified with the civil rights movement. And so, of course, they then killed. Malcolm X and a whole passion of other black leaders, including black Catholics like Fred Hampton. And so then they go to the men who aren't seen on television again. The body of Martin Luther King Jr. lying on the balcony of the main motel. His brain's broken. So by the time I'm getting out of high school, I am convinced, without any doubt, white people are trying to kill me. It's just as simple and plain as that. And so, and that feeling hasn't diminished over the years. But, but apropos of your question, I mean, in terms of the civil rights movement, it's a continuum. Uh, and, and this is a natural evolution, a natural maturation of what's going on in the civil rights movement. And it will evolve and mature from here. To what I wow, this has been a, a very interesting topic, in interesting story. You have a, a wealth of knowledge. I can talk to you all day. Of course, of course. Uh, just up before we before we go, I just wanted to kind of um, just ask. I know you've been in South Africa for 20 years. You said you've you were a White House correspondent correspondence, I believe, in the U.S. Justice um, Department. Um, and I'm pretty sure you've come across a lot of, of very VIP, important people, world leaders. Which one of them have impacted you the most and why? No, they're all so special. <laughs> in different ways, right? Well, just give, give an example of one. Well, of you know, all the so-called celebrity figures, I mean, it's by Angelou, it was, it was um, I met briefly Tony Morrison, and that was, uh, and there are various actors and performers like that, but in, in terms of uh, most of us, most black people, have been on the same path, and they're, they're on this continuum. And, and in that sense, we have developed leaders who are on that continuum. And, uh, and leaders for the moment. Uh, and we've also you know, had our share of idiots. I mean, you know, this fool, Senator Scott from South Carolina, 
what is it, yesterday, the day before, says, woke supremacy is as bad as white supremacy? Who is this idiot? I don't know. Where, I mean, where is his mama? I mean, so we have our share of demons, but we have our more. We have our share of people who are rising and have risen to the moment. Uh, I think that's. Uh, I have a lot of. It's hard for me to separate out. I. It's very hard for me to separate. I am proud, and and and, and many of them begin in my family. I mean, My grandmother, I mean, she's the youngest, youngest and the only female with 13 children. She had to be a tough group. I mean, she had to find her way out of bed, into bed, to the dinner table, on the dinner table. I mean, you know, period. And so she was one of the most, one of the strongest people I've ever met. She passed a lot of that order to my mother. Was the second most strong person I've ever met. And so, uh, and, and, and I walked hand in hand with my grandmother to the 63 March of Washington. And so I'm, I'm, I'm sitting uh, watching these televised moments in our history with my mother and grandmother. And so I'm listening to the commentary, the commentary. And they're not trying to incite their children. In fact, if anything, they really want to calm them down. But they didn't sugarcoat what was going on. And so, in that sense, our parents, our grandparents, developed the ideas and the expectations. led to leadership roles many of us have adopted and played and continued. It's a continuum. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day. <laughs> and definitely, um, whenever your memoirs are done, I would love to have you come back on the show so we can talk about that. <laughs>